نعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله Verily the praise belongs to Allah, we praise Him, we seek His assistance and forgiveness, and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the evil consequences of our deeds. Whoever Allah guides, there is no one that can lead him astray, and whoever Allah leads astray, there is no one that can guide him. I bear witness that nothing deserves to be worshipped except Allah alone, and that He has no partners or associates, and I bear witness that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam his faith servant and his messenger. Uh, we would like to begin our class this evening. I think it is the tenth uh, lecture in our series of topics concerning fifth and hadith. And we are continuing with the hadith from Umdas Ahkam. Uh, the book of Hadith of the great scholar Abdul Ghani Ibn Al-Wahid Abdul Wahid Al-Maqtasi Al-Hamdani And we have uh, have taken the practice in reading these Hadith to also mention some brief explanations concerning the rulings of the scholars that are derived from these Hadith and that explanation basically for the most part is taken from the Shah of Umdas al-Ahkam the book Taytir al-A'lam by Shaykh Abdullah ibn Abdurrahman ibn Salih al-Bassam Hafidhullah and we have reached now this evening in this 10th lecture hadith number 23 and because of the shortness of time and the longness for the length of this topic this evening I would uh, like to skip the review of the previous hadith which we discussed concerning al-masah or wiping, or wiping over the kufayn, wiping over the sa'ah and get right to the topic that we have for this evening this is the chapter entitled al-masah al-mazhi wa ghayrihi yani a chapter concerning al-mazhi or uh, al-mazhi which is prosthetic fluid and other things uh, related or falling under the same category or similar, yani having similar rulings those things which are considered to be impurities that have to be removed or those things or those matters which nullify one's state of sahara or one's condition of purification the shaykh, shaykh Abdullah Al-Bassam, he begins by explaining the definition of Al-Mazh, Al-Mazhu or Mazhi. Yeah, there are two different ways that this word can be pronounced. He says that it is a liquid which comes from the uh, sexual organ. Yeah, male or female sexual organ. And uh, some of the scholars also mention that it is a white, thin, sticky fluid which uh, is excreted from the male or sexual or male or female sexual organs at the time of foreplay or that which precedes 
sexual intercourse or at the time when one thinks about sexual intercourse or on similar occasions and they also mention that usually the excretion of this substance is not noticed by the person at the time when it comes out but might only be noticed later on Uh, also, some of the scholars say that this substance is excreted by the female more than the male. In any case, the first hadith that we want to discuss this evening is concerning al-Madhu or al-Madhi. And here we want to talk about the ruling or the ahkam concerning this substance al-Madi or al-Nazi uh, concerning it being impure and its uh, relation to one's state of purification does it nullify or invalidate one's state of purification and also in this chapter there are a number of other hadiths and in this small chapter contains five hadiths uh, all of them related to that which nullifies one's state of purification or those things, those impurities uh, that are considered negative and how to um, remove them. The first hadith, hadith number 23, is narrated on the authority of Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu who said, Kuntu rajulan madza'an fastahyaytu an as'ala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama li makan ibnatihi minni. Ali Ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu, he said, I was a man who used to experience uh, a lot of prosthetic fluid discharge. So I was shy to ask the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa the ruling concerning this matter due to being the fact that his daughter, the daughter of the Messenger of Allah so it was a matter that he didn't feel comfortable to ask the father of his wife concerned. He said, due to my shyness, I asked or I ordered or requested Al-Mazdaad ibn Al-Aswad, one of the companions of the Prophet وسلم, uh, to ask about this matter. And the Prophet وسلم, answered by saying, Al-Mizri or Al-Mazi or Al-Mizyu, if it is excreted by someone, then he should wash the private part and make wudu. Yasilu zakarahu wa yatawadda. You must wash the private part and you must also make wudu. And in the narration of Al Bukhari, he said, Wash your private part in the command form and make wudu. And in the narration of Muslim, make wudu and sprinkle water over the private part. This hadith can be found in the English translation of Sahih Muslim in volume 1. Page 
Hadith number 593. The Shaykh here mentions concerning one of the words used in the narration of Muslim, concerning the word Nabh, yani, he said the meaning of Nabh, it means to sprinkle, to sprinkle some water, or to spray some water. This is the most common meaning of it, but sometimes it means to wash, to actually wash something, not just to sprinkle some water upon it. And the shaykh says here the meaning is al-ghusl. It means to wash it, not just to sprinkle water. And this second meaning, which is the lesser common usage of the word, it is proven to be this meaning by the other narrations where the Prophet actually used the word ghusl. So we understand that here the meaning of nabh, though it may mean to sprinkle or to wash, the most common meaning is to sprinkle. But because of the other narrations, we know that he means here not to sprinkle water, but to wash the private part and then make wudu. Uh, also, the Shaykh says the general meaning of this hadith is that Ali he was a man who used to experience much prosthetic excretion. And he said that he used to make a ghusl from it so much until it became difficult for him to make a ghusl every time he experienced this. He used to think, the reason why he used to make the ghusl is because he used to think that the ruling of Al-Nabi is the same as the ruling of Al-Mani. Al-Mani is firm or seminal. And he used to think that just as seminal emission requires ghusl, then the initial the emission of prosthetic fluid also requires ghusl. And he used to make a ghusl every time, and then he finally, because of the difficulty of making ghusl so often, he decided to ask about it to be sure uh, of what was the ruling. But due to the fact that this issue or this matter is related to sexual relations and the daughter of the Prophet was his wife, he was shy to ask the question, so he asked someone else to ask it, and Mr. and he asked uh, that if and Mali is excreted by someone, uh, what must he do? And he said, the Prophet said that if it is excreted, the person must wash the private part until that which came out of it is removed. that substance, and then he must make wudu because of the fact that anything that comes from a sabirain, the two openings, from the front or from the back, requires, uh, it is a another side of wudu and requires that a person must renew their ablution after any such excretion. So here in this uh, answer of the Prophet وسلم, he guided the questioner in his answer to two matters, one of them Amrun Shari and the other Amrun Sibbi. That is, he explained to him one matter that is a legal matter, the requirement of wudu, and the other matter is a medical matter, that is, the washing of the private part of the cleanliness. 
يعني for medical benefit or prevention of uncleanliness. And as you know, there is a difference between washing something unclean from the body and making wudu. Wudu is not from the physical cleaning of dirt from the body when you wash your hands or face or feet. But more than that, even if the body is already clean, you must still make wudu. If you had wind, for example, or if you were sleeping in deep sleep and you woke up in the morning, you have to make wudu even though your body might be perfectly clean. Because the wudu not only is the physical purification, but it's purification externally as well as internally. And the wudu prepares the person spiritually for the performance of ibadah, even if their body before performing wudu was already clean. So here the Prophet explained to him in this answer that he should make wudu, which is a legal matter for purification for ibadah, and he should wash the private parts for physical cleanliness, for medical benefits. The, the Sheikh, Sheikh Abdullah al-Ghassan, here mentioned five points that are derived from this hadith. The first of them, that al-Nazi is a form of impurity, and it is obligatory to remove it by washing. Except that some small amount that may remain unnoticed is overlooked and yeah, forgiven in the Islamic law because of the difficulty of always yeah, being able to remove every bill. So that it should be removed, but if any small remnants remain, there is no harm due to the difficulty, as some of the scholars have mentioned the difficulty of removing it completely. The second point that this prosthetic fluid is one of the nullifiers of wudu, another, one of the nullifiers of ablution, because it comes from one of the two openings, the front or the back of the private area. Number three, the obligation of washing the private part. Not only does it nullify wudu requiring to make a new ablution, but it also the private part must be washed, requires washing. Number four, that this excretion of prosthetic fluid does not obligate one to wash the whole body, like the one who is in a state of janata, taking a complete bustle of the whole body. And this point, that it is not required to take a complete bustle of the whole body, is agreed upon by consensus or ijma' of the scholars. And lastly, he mentions that it is not sufficient for the removal of prosthetic fluid, it is not sufficient to make an istijmar, that is cleaning oneself with solid substance like stones or otherwise, as you can do with the passing of urine or defecation. Urine or feces can be removed if there is no water by using solid matter, such as pebbles or otherwise, that's called istijmar, but for the removal of al-nazyu or mebi, it is not sufficient to make istijma, but it is required that the person has to use water to remove that impurity. The next hadith, hadith number 24, deals with another subject altogether. And inshallah tonight we will try to go through five topics. 
This is very important to pay attention to this hadith. The ruling concerning uh, that which nullifies one state of purification through the passing of wind. It is reported from the authority of Abdad ibn Tamim and Abdullah ibn Zayd ibn Asim and Nazini radiallahu anhu taat shukiya ila nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam al-rajlu yukhayyiru ilayhi innahu yajidu al-shay'a fil-salati Ya'ni a man complains about the situation of someone who imagines or feels as though there is something happening inside of him Ya'ni one of those things that nullifies wudu like passing of wind or something like this he feels like this he is not sure but he feels like this while he is in salat Ya'ni what is his condition what should he do Fakada, the Prophet answered him by saying, لا ينصرف حتى يسمع صوتا أو يجد ريحا that he should not leave his salat. He is praying and he feels something perhaps he says when he is not sure. لا ينصرف حتى يسمع صوتا أو يجد ريحا he should not leave his prayer until he hears the sound of the passing of wind or he finds the smell from that passing of wind. He is conscious that he has actually passed wind. He is sure about it because he heard the sound of smell, the smell. This hadith is reported in the Bukhari volume 1, page 102, hadith number 139. And it is reported in the Sahih Muslim volume 1, page 199, hadith number 702 and 703. The Shaykh here explains this hadith by saying this hadith as it was mentioned by Al-Imam Al-Nawawi Rahimahullah is one of the Qawaid of Islam Al-Ama wa Usuluhu Al-Lati Tubna Alayha Al-Ahkam Al-Kathira Al-Jaleena that this hadith is one of the general comprehensive foundation principles of the religion of Islam one of the foundations that so many important rulings are based upon. So many rulings are based on this one principle. What is that principle? It is the principle that a thing remains according to its original ruling. It remains unless we are definite that there is some change in it. That if we know that we are in a state of purification and we doubt perhaps we lost our state of purification, it remains. The original ruling remains that we are in a state of purification and the opposite is also so. A thing that we are certain of remains on its original ruling and is not removed by something doubtful. We are sure we made Google and we are doubtful. Did we pass wind? Did we go to the bathroom an hour ago? It's time for Salat now. I'm not sure that I nullify my wudu, but I'm sure that I made wudu. I remember at 2 o'clock I made wudu. But since then I'm not sure what happened. Uncertainty does not remove that which we are certain about. The thing which we are certain about remains according to its original rule. Doubt cannot remove it. Even if that thing which we are doubtful about is a strong doubt, 
or weak doubt. As long as we are doubtful about it, it does not remove that which we were certain about. And there are many examples of this. One of them is this very hadith. That the person who is doubtful, did he pass will or not? And he is sure, before he made salat, he made wudu. That that which he is sure about remains, and that which he is doubtful about does not remove it. He remains in a state of purification and stays in the prayer. As long as the person is certain about his state of purification, and he is doubtful about invalidating or nullifying that state of purification, then he remains in the state of purification. And the opposite is also so. Whoever is sure that they nullified their state of purification, they are sure that they went to the bathroom and urinated, or they passed in, or anything that nullifies purification, they are sure about that, and they don't remember, did they make wudu after that? They are not sure about them getting into the state of purification, then they remain in the state of uncleanliness and they require wudu as long as they are not sure that they made wudu or ablution after having nullified their ablution. Uh, and the same thing, not only the person's personal state of purification, but also your clothing or the place where you pray. If you are sure that it was clean and you are not sure about its uncleanliness, then you can proceed as though it's clean. Your clothing, the place where you pray, and so on. Some examples he mentions two here, two examples of this, of, of that which is derived from this same principle. One example of them is the number of rakah, the number of rakahat that a person performed in the prayer. If a person is sure that they made three rakah, for example, for Dhuhr, for Hathor, or Isha, they are sure they made three, but they are doubtful about the fourth rakah. Did they, are they now in the fourth, or are they in the third? Three I am sure I made, but the fourth one I am not sure. Then we remain on the original ruling of that which you are sure about. That is that you made three, and then you make another one. Another example of this is the person who is in doubt about the divorce of their wife. If a person is not sure did he divorce her or not, then the original ruling remains that she is his wife. She remains as his wife. Now, he is sure that she is his wife. Then he divorced her, he is not sure about. Then the original ruling remains that she remains the manager. And so it is, I mean, this rule is applicable to so many other issues. It is a very important rule that we should understand well and benefit from it in the affairs or the matters of our land. From this hadith, the Sheikh mentions five points. The first of them, the general rule, this very important rule which we have mentioned now and we have discussed in detail, that things remain uh, on their original condition or in their original state as long as there is nothing certain that changes. The second point, that uh, the fact that someone has a doubt they are not sure about, but there is an idea that perhaps they invalidated their state of purification, it does not invalidate their abnution, nor does it invalidate their salat. The simple fact that someone has a doubt, they have a feeling that perhaps they invalidated their abnution, it does not, I mean, it's not invalidated simply by this feeling. And also, uh, from this hadith, we understand that it is prohibited for someone to leave their salat except for a reason that they are certain about. Except the person who is certain 
Otherwise, it is prohibited to leave the Salat just because of doubt. Fourth, that that wind or gas that comes out of someone's body by with a sound or without a sound, it is another part of wudu. This is a very important point. That if gas, if someone passes wind, if they hear it or don't hear it, but they are sure that they pass wind, not they are doubtful, sure, but they didn't hear it, that that wind or that gas nullifies wudu, even though you didn't hear it. The point here is when a person is in doubt, they are not sure, there is some rumbling in their stomach and they feel perhaps they passed wind, but they are not sure. They didn't hear anything, they didn't smell anything, then they remain in a state of purification. But if you are sure that you passed gas, even though you didn't hear anything or smell anything, then the passing of gas nullifies the state of ablution. And the fifth or last point he mentions here is that what is meant in this hadith by you should not be, yeah, I mean, don't go out of the prayer until you hear, until you hear a sound or you smell something. What is meant by this expression is this is the, the way in which the Prophet wants to let us know that you should not leave the prayer until you are certain, until you are certain that you really did pass wind. And when you heard something, or you smelled something, there's no doubt that. But if the doubt is removed without hearing or smelling, and you are sure that you passed with, then still, the ruling is the same. Then the abolition or the state of purification is uh, nullified when the person should leave the prayer and go and perform abolition. And the next hadith, hadith number 25, is another matter altogether, the ruling concerning the urine of the young boy or young girl. The hadith of Umtayt bin Mehsan al-Asadiyyah annaha atat bi ibn laha sagheer lam ya'kul al-Qa'an. Umtayt, the daughter of Mehsan al-Asadiyyah radiallahu anha, she came with her young son who didn't begin to eat regular food yet. And he had not yet been weaned from taking milk from his mother's breast. He was still breastfeeding at that age. She came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ila Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fa'ajzazahu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fi hijrihi. Then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam took him and sat him in his lap. The Prophet took that small baby and sat him in his lap. فَبَارَ عَلَى ثَوْبِهِ then the child urinated on the Prophet's soul, on his clothing. فَدَعَى بِمَاءٍ فَنَرْحَهُ عَلَى ثَوْبِهِ وَلَمْ يَزْسِلْهُ At that moment the Prophet called for some water and he sprinkled that water on his soul وَلَمْ يَزْسِلْهُ And he did not wash the soul. He didn't wash it. He simply sprinkled or sprayed some water on his door. The second hadith, the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, Umul Mu'mineen, Anna Rasulullah al-Mu'mineen, that a small child was brought to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, فَبَعَلَ عَلَى ثَوْبِهِ that he urinated on the Prophet's garment, فَدَعَ بِمَاءٍ that he called for water, 
Then he spilled or poured that water over the place where the urine was at. Yeah, and in the place where the urine, wherever it was at, he sprinkled or poured some water over that area. And in the narration of Muslim, he said, The Prophet followed up the place wherever the urine was, and he didn't wash that spot for his garment. He only simply poured some water over it or sprinkled some water over it. And this hadith, these two hadith can be found in uh, the first of them in Bukhari, volume 1, page number 144, hadith number 223, and the second one in the same place in Bukhari, uh, hadith number 222. And the first hadith may also be found in Sahih Muslim. In volume 1, page 169, hadith number 563. The Shaykh mentions the general meaning of this hadith, and he says, The companions of the Prophet, they used to come to him, with their children, seeking his blessing and seeking the barakah of his supplication. They used to bring their children to get the blessings from the Prophet and to get the blessing of his supplication. Whenever he, when the children were brought to him, perhaps he would supplicate for them and the children would be blessed with it. And it was from his kindness and his uh, noble character that he used to receive these children in the way that Allah had, the nature, the beautiful character and nature that Allah had created the Prophet upon his uh, good, happy, joyous nature, he would receive them in that way. He was very happy to receive them. So it happened that from Qayyid, she came to the Prophet with a small child who was still feeding on milk, who was not yet eating normal food. He had not yet reached the age when he was taking other food. It was from the mercy of the Prophet that he took this child and sat him in his lap. Then that child urinated on the stone, so the Prophet called for some water and he sprinkled it in the place where the urine was on his soul. And he did it, he did not wash his soul. Here, in this hadith, we want to mention a point of ikhtilaf or difference of opinion amongst the scholars before mentioning the points that are derived from this hadith. Uh, the first group of scholars concerning the washing or sprinkling of water on the soul of the person where a child has urinated on them. There's one group of scholars who said that it is sufficient to sprinkle water on the soul of a person who a small child has urinated on them, or female. Whether that child was male or female. The child in this hadith was a boy. Some scholars said, by piyat, or comparison, we also apply the same ruling to girls. And we said that if a girl urinates, then uh, it's also applicable to her. By piyat, they didn't have any text, actual wording of hadith or practice of the Prophet for such. On the contrary, the evidence uh, is opposite to what they are saying. But anyway, that was the first opinion. The second opinion is another group. They said that the boy and the girl, child, small child, are sufficient, are equal in the obligation that the soul should be washed 
Yani if it's boy or girl, you have to wash the urine. Not simply sprinkle some water, but for both of them you have to wash the soul. The opposite of the first opinion. The first opinion they said that boys and girls are equal, you only have to sprinkle some water. The second opinion is that they are equal, but in both cases you have to wash the soul. And the third opinion, which is the opinion that is based on the evidence, the clear text of the hadith, is that sprinkling water is for the male child and washing is for the female child. And this is what is indicated in the clear authentic hadith of the Prophet and this is the madhab of many of the imams including Rahimahumullah, may Allah have mercy on all of them, Al-Imam Al-Shafi'i, Al-Imam Ahmed, Al-Imam Ishaq Ibn Rahaway, the Shaykh of Al-Bukhari, Al-Imam Al-Awza'i, Al-Imam Ibn Hassan, Al-Imam Ibn Taymiyyah, and his student Ibn Qayyim, and it is also the opinion of the Shaykh of our, uh, of the author of Taytir Al-Alam, his Shaykh Abdurrahman Ibn Sa'adi, Rahimahumullah, and many others of the scholars. From this hadith he mentions that there are three main points. The first of them is that the urine of the small child, even if that child didn't begin to eat food, even if they are only taking breast milk, the urine of that child is impure and it has to be removed by sprinkling water. The second point is that the way to remove that impurity, to clean the place where the urine of the small boy is found, is simply by sprinkling some water and it is not necessary to pour so much water that the whole of the soul becomes saturated with water. Yeah, I mean simply to sprinkle, to take a handful of water and sprinkle some water over that place is sufficient. And the last point is the character, the noble character of the Prophet and his humility is shown in this hadith. How many of the great people and important people in the world today would have the time to receive small children of anyone who comes to them and take their child in their arm and sit them in their lap? This shows the noble character and the humility of the Prophet And also there is a minor point here uh, perhaps I will try to quickly mention it, and it is that the scholars differ. Why is there a difference between the ruling concerning the urine of the boy and the urine of the girl? And many scholars try to uh, identify what, in their mind, was the real reason for this differentiation. And one of the best yeah, I mean, explanations for such is that the small child, in the customs, of the people, or particularly, we can say in the customs of the Arabs, I don't know about other people, the boy child is more beloved to them. You know it was the practice in Jahiliya that they used to bury girl children, small baby when they were girls, but they loved the male child. So it is, even until today, the habit of the Arab people, and maybe others as well, that they prefer to, uh, or they were attracted to the male child more than the female child and for this reason they used to carry them and hold them more, the male child and they used to come in contact with them and many times it happened that that child might defile their clothing through some impurity like urine or otherwise and this became a difficulty for the people that every time they took that child if he urinated or some urine down on that person that they would have to wash 
completely and for this reason the, Islamic, the noble Islamic law has allowed some easiness in this matter uh, as we found in so many other matters that uh, the Islamic law usually allows some ease in cases of difficulty and this is mentioned in all of the books of Usul Fit as the very famous Qaida Al-Amr, the general rule Al-Mashakta Tajlibu Al-Taytir Al-Mashakta Tajlibu Al-Taytir that whenever there is difficulty and hardship that it allows for some ease in the matter the Islamic law always brings some ease as you know, the person who is sick the person who is traveling and so many other cases there is ease and here it is also in this case that we find the Islamic law has allowed some ease while some of the scholars held the opinion that this issue of the differentiation between the urine of the male child and the female child is not something that can be understood rationally or intellectually, it is min al-masal and it is one of those issues that related to worship. We don't use our rational thinking or our intellect to try to figure out what we leave it as Allah has legislated, we accept it and we submit to it, whether we understand the wisdom behind it or not. Going very long, with the help of Allah. Hadith number 26. Hadith number 26 deals with the ruling concerning how to purify the earth, the ground where urine has been spilled, where someone has urinated. How do we purify that ground? This hadith is reported on the authority of Anas ibn Malik anhu, and also on the authority of Abu Hurairah anhu. جاء عربي فبال في طائفة المسجد A Bedouin man came and he urinated in one corner of the masjid فذكره الناس The people shouted and went to him to deal with him harshly as was the practice of the Bedouin in that time and even in this time فنهاهم and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam stopped him فَلَمَّا قَضَى قَوْلَهُ when that man finished urinating أَمَرَ and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam بِذُنُوبٍ مِنْ مَعِنْ فَأُحْرِكَ عَلَيْهِ then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ordered the people to bring a bucket full of water and that water was poured over the place where the man had urinated this hadith can be found in the Sahih of the Bukhari in volume 1, page 143, hadith number 221. The general meaning of this hadith, Shaykh Abdullah ibn Abdurrahman says, that it was the habit or the custom of the Bedouin to be harsh and rough and also it was common that ignorance was widespread amongst them this was due to their lack of knowledge of what had been revealed to the Prophet from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and even today the people who are living far away out in the desert also we find that ignorance is widespread and they are rough and harsh because of the environment that they are living in so 
while the Prophet was with his companions in Al Masjid in Nabawi, the Prophet's Masjid in Medina, a Bedouin man came. He went to a side of the Masjid. You know how the Masjid was in that time? Not like today. It wasn't built up, but just some palm leaves over it, and maybe some palm stalks or wood or something around the side. And the ground was sand. There wasn't any carpet, no tile or anything. So, that man came, he went to the side of the masjid and he urinated there, thinking that it was just like being out in the field or in the desert. This was something very difficult for the companions of the Prophet because of the sacredness of the masjid. So they began to scold him or shout at him while he was urinating, while he was urinating. But the one who had noble character, the one who was sent for mission to give the people good news and to call them to ease. Since he knew how was the condition of the Bedouins, he prohibited those people from harming him so that in order to prevent a more larger area of the masjid from being defiled, if they had interrupted him, perhaps the urine would have gotten all over the masjid, not in the little spot where he was standing or sitting. So the Prophet ﷺ prevented this and also so that no harm would come to that man if they had cut him off while he was in the process of relieving himself. And also so that that person would be in a better condition or in a better position to accept the advice of the Prophet ﷺ and to allow the Prophet ﷺ to teach him after that incident had taken place. So the Prophet ordered them to clean that place where the urine was by pouring a bucket of water over it. From this hadith, the Shaykh mentions seven points. The first of them is that uh, the earth where urine has been spilled is purified simply by pouring water over it. And it is not necessary to remove the sand or the dirt from that place before pouring the water, nor after pouring the water. It is sufficient just to pour water over that, over that place. The second point, the respect that one should have for the messages and the need to keep them clean. Number three, the nobleness of the character of the Prophet as he guided that Bedouin man with kindness and ease and softness after he had urinated in the masjid. And it was the kindness and ease in his manner of handling this situation that caused that man, as it was reported in the Sahih of Al-Bukhari, to supplicate to Allah, to supplicate to Allah, saying, Allahumma rahamni wa muhammadan wa la farham ma'ana ahadan. Oh Allah, have mercy on me and Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and don't have mercy on anyone else besides us. <laughs> it was the kindness of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that made him 
Not only to pray for yourself, but also to pray for the Prophet and leave everyone else out, the rest of these rough people who handled me so, so roughly. Number four, the far-sightedness of the Prophet and his deep knowledge of the disposition or the nature of the people. He understood how to handle the people. Number five, and this is also a general rule and usul, that when there are two matters which are both of them harmful, two of them together, then we should take the lesser of them. The lesser of them. There are two harmful matters. If you have the ability only to escape from one of them, then you may commit the lesser of them in order to avoid the worst of them. So, this is demonstrated by the action of the Prophet in that he allowed that man to finish urinating. That was the lesser of the two harms in order to avoid the greater of those two harms that was uh, in stopping that man while he was in the process of urinating. Number six, that being far away from the people and living outside of the cities, like out in the desert, is a major cause for roughness and harshness and ignorance. Number seven, it is requested and required and expected that when anyone wants to teach someone who is ignorant, that they should be easy with them and kind and soft with them. Don't be harsh with them just because they are ignorant. But the teaching of the ignorant person requires easiness and softness. Now, and finally, the last hadith for this evening and the end of this chapter, and inshallah next week we will start on the chapter of Al-Ghutu. The last hadith of this chapter is clarification of the ruling concerning circumcision shaving the hair from the pubic area, cutting the mustache, and so on. This hadith is reported in uh, the Sahih of Muslim in volume 1, page 159, hadith number 495. On the authority of Abu Hurairah, who called, Samir to Rasulullah, I heard the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa saying Al-Fitratu Khamsun The thing Al-Azbir Al-Azafir Al-Azafir That is clipping or cutting the fingernail And this is both for men and women Clipping the fingernails off Wa-Nasfu Al-Ibti and shaving or removing the hair from underneath the armpit. The general meaning of the hadith, the Shaykh Hafizullah says that Abu Hurairah mentioned that he heard the Prophet saying that there are five characteristics, special characteristics, or, or beautiful characteristics of the deen of Islam. 
those things which Allah has made part of the nature of the human being. Whoever performs them, then he has performed a great, or he has done something, a good, or uh, achieved a great characteristic from this noble religion. Uh, and those five things are mentioned in this hadith. All of them are matters related to an-nabaqa, cleanliness. All of them are related to cleanliness. The matters of cleanliness which Islam has called for. The first of them is cutting that foreskin from the private part, which if it remains is the cause of connection or compiling of impurities and unclean things and this leads to uh, disease or sicknesses. Circumcision, circumcision is a means of keeping the body clean and protecting one or preventing uh, illnesses. The second of them is shaving or removing the hairs around the private parts, the pubic hairs, from the front or from the back. Because if these hairs remain in that place, it opens the person to become defiled by impurities and it allows for impurities to collect around the private areas. And this also might be a cause to nullify one's legal state of purification of Sahara. The leaving of those hairs allows impurities to collect that might nullify one's state of purification, which means that their acts of worship such as Salat would be rejected. The third of them is trimming the mustache, which if it remains, it disfigures the creation, the natural creation as Allah created the human being. Allah didn't intend that that mustache should grow wild, as we found in some places today, where people have the longest mustache, or the widest, or the thickest mustache, or whatever, that they find in the Guinness Book of Records, disfiguring the, the natural creation that Allah has created. Not only that, but it is disliked. Perhaps the person who comes to drink after someone who has this big, thick, wide mustache uh, would not like to drink behind them because of fear of the unclean And as well, it is a comparison, or it is being similar or imitation of the Majus. Because the Majus, the Najians, they used to grow their mustaches like this. So this is also imitation of the pagan Majus. The fourth of them is cutting the fingernail, which if they remain, allow uncleanliness or dirt to remain underneath those nails. And perhaps when someone is eating, as Muslims are called to follow the sunnah of eating with the right hand, perhaps that uncleanliness or impurity that's under the fingernails might even mix in with one's food, and this might be a cause of disease or sickness also. And it also, those fingernails might also be something that prevents the completion or perfection of one's state of cleanliness, one's sahara, because it might prevent the water when one makes wudu from reaching some part of the hand that is necessary to be washed in wudu. And the fifth and last of those things mentioned in this hadith is uh, removing the hair from, from under the arm, which those hairs that they remain are at least a cause of an unhealthy and unpleasant smell. The odor, 
that comes from the underarm is increased by those hairs remaining under the arm. Uh, in general, these five things or the removal of these things are part of the beauty of Islam which has come with cleanliness, the false cleanliness and purification and refinement of human character and behavior and manners so that the Muslim would always be in the best condition and also have the best apparent appearance. For verily, cleanliness is a part of an iman, part of faith. The Shaykh mentions six points that are derived from this hadith. The first of them, that the fitra of Allah, the nature that Allah has created things in, calls to every good and requires of us to be distant from every evil. The second of them, that these noble characteristics, these five noble characteristics, are from the fitrah that Allah has created the human being upon, which Allah loves and which Allah has commanded the Muslim to fulfill. And also those people who are natural and normal as Allah created them, uh, they are attracted to the fulfillment of these things and staying far away from that which is contrary to it. As long as the Muslim remains of his nature, then he finds these things attractive to him and the opposite to be repulsive. Number three, that the Islamic way of life forward to cleanliness and beautification and perfection in whatever we do. Number four, that it is legislated that a person should follow up these things regularly and don't forget about performing them. Yeah, I mean regularly you should cut the nails, trim the mustache, remove the hairs under the arms and so on. And number five, that this number five here doesn't mean that the things are separate, the natural things are only limited to five. Because it is also reported in the hadith of Imam Muslim وَقَدْ كَانَ نَبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ يَذْكُرُوا مِنْ أَنْوَاعِ الْفِطْرَةِ فِي كُلِّ مَوْضُوعٍ مَا يُنَاسِبُهُ That for every topic or situation or circumstance, the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم used to mention those things of the fitra which are appropriate or suitable for that occasion or that subject or that topic that he was talking about. And in many hadiths he mentioned other things of the things of fitra, even there's a hadith where he mentioned not five but ten of the things of fitra. Number six, Al-Hafid Al-Hajr Al-Qurani, Rahimahullah, said that there are many benefits from these things of fitra, religious benefits as well as worldly benefits, and amongst them is the purification of one's appearance, the cleanliness of the body, uh, taking precautions in maintaining one's state of purification, uh, being in contradiction or contrary to those things that are the signs or the symbols or the characteristics of the disbelievers, and also, uh, I mean, being in submission to the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when legislated this. The last point that the Shaykh mentioned, that which we find some of the young men and young ladies doing today, such as having long fingernails, and some of the young men allowing their mustache to grow wildly, these are things that are prohibited in the Islamic law, and they are considered to be ugly by the intellect and also by those who have the natural taste that Allah created in the human being and created us. 
and also that the religion of Islam does not demand us from anything except that which is good and beautiful, and it does not prohibit us from anything except that which is ugly or evil. And also he mentions here in this point that blind following of the foreigners, that is the disbelievers, has this blind following has been entrenched in the minds of the Muslims to such an extent that the reality of things have been turned upside down so that uh, those things which are ugly and evil have been made fair-seeming and good and those things which are good people have are running away from uh, as though they are something bad. The final point here, the ikhtilaf in this hadith, there are a few points of ikhtilaf three, and then we will close with this before the adhan, insha'Allah. The scholars are agreed, and this is concerning circumcision. There is a point of difference concerning circumcision. The scholars are agreed about that these things which are mentioned in this hadith, all of them are mustahab. Mustahab. They are commendable, recommended, except the khitan, circumcision. The scholars differ about it. Is it mustahab? Or is it wajib? And they differ. When does it become obligatory if it's wajib? At what time? In the life of the person. And number three, is it obligatory on men as well as women or on men only? And the Sheikh just says here very briefly, in closing, that the most correct opinion concerning these points of difference or ikhtilaf is that circumcision is wajib, is obligatory. And it is obligatory on men not on women, not obligatory on women. Although there is a form of circumcision for women, but it's not obligatory. And that the time of circumcision becoming obligatory on the male child is at the time of al-bulu or maturity or the reaching the age of puberty. At the time when the sahara and salat become obligatory on that male child. This is the end of what we wanted to say today. May Allah grant us success uh, to follow that which he has legislated in the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Subhanahu wa ta'ala Bihamdika Ashadu an la ilaha illa anta Astaghfirullah Atubu ilayhi There are a number of questions here from the sisters who try to answer them Inshallah understanding before the Adhan The first of them I don't know which one to take first. There's one very short. Can a man shave his face? Uh, shaving is prohibited in Islam. In the authentic hadith, recorded by Imam Muslim, on the authority of Abdul Ibn Umar, he said that the Prophet ordered us to trim the mustache and to leave the beard. And the scholars said that this order from the Prophet means that it's obligatory so that a man should not shave his face. The second question, uh, can a woman get circumcised after she has reached puberty? Is it sunnah mu'akkada? May Allah guide you and us. Ameen. Ameen. I don't know if a woman can get circumcised after she has reached puberty. I don't know what is the timing for the woman. Uh, but it is from the sunnah, it is something that mustahab is not obligatory. Uh, well, about uh, the time of puberty, I don't know who knows that. Assalamu <coughs> alaikum. What evidence has been given from any of the things that Aisha Rasulullah was saying to companions that while sprinkling after a boy urinated, etc., etc., one must wash the area of the defiled garment after a girl 
if it's possible to uh, get out of the masjid without disturbing the prayer in the best way you can, it's permissible even to walk through the land. Because if a person is in congregation, in the congregational prayer, then the Imam is the Sutra for the people who are praying behind him. And the Sutra of the Imam is for all of the people. That means, if you are praying in congregation and you walk in front of people in the line who are behind the Imam, there is no harm in it. But if you walk in front of someone who is praying alone, not in congregation, then this is what is written. In the congregation prayer is not written. But if the person may find it easier to walk through, through the line, instead of walking along the line in front of the people, whichever way is less disturbing to the people who are praying, it's permissible. <laughs> is it permissible to make wulu while a person is not completely covered? And is they only covered maybe from their navel to their knees? Or less than that? I, I don't know if there is any prohibition. I'm not aware that there is any prohibition of making wudu while the person is wearing short pants or something not completely covering their eyes. I don't know that there is any prohibition. What we do know is that it is permissible to make wudu while a person is completely naked. And this was the sunnah of the Prophet when he performed wudu. As part of the wudu, he used to make wudu while he had no clothing on. It was permissible in that state of nakedness to make wudu. Wudu is part of Muslim. So that, as far as I know, there is no prohibition from making wudu while you are not completely clothed. As far as I know, and Allah knows that. <laughs> But if the person is not covered, the hour is not covered, perhaps the reasoning behind some objection to a person performing wudu while they are wearing something that doesn't cover their aura, yani they are not covered to their knees, from their navel to the knees, is the aura for the men. If a person is wearing some clothing less than that, that means their aura is uncovered. Maybe the objection is not to perform an ablution, but the objection is that you should be in front of other people while your hour is shown. Not, not to make wudu, but not to come out in the public while you are exposing your hour. Maybe the objection is to this, and Allah knows that. Perhaps they have called the abandonment. Okay, there are no more questions from the ladies, inshallah, we can prepare for that. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم